may be seated. I invite you now and encourage you to take your copy of God's Word or a pew Bible or if you have it on your phone and turn with me to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah. And you will find Nehemiah there in between Ezra and Esther. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. And of course, we have been saying for some weeks now that we are going to begin our fall sermon series today on the book of Nehemiah. And I think it's safe to say that if you are familiar with this book, then you're probably familiar with the overall uh, picture of this book, and that is the narrative of the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. You think of Nehemiah, you think about him going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And as we will see, there is more to this book than it just being a narrative of a construction project. There's so much more actually what we find is the wall really is more in the background than it is in the foreground. It's really a story about God's faithfulness and our response of faithfulness to him. And so this morning we're going to introduce this book by looking at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. So hopefully you found it. Go ahead and bookmark it because we're going to be in this uh, for the next several weeks if not months. So let me pray for us as we come now before God's word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Nehemiah, written so many years ago, but it's your word. And your word is breathed out by you, and it's profitable. It doesn't matter how long ago it came. It came from the sovereign Lord. It is good for our souls. It is good for our faith. It is good for our lives. So we pray that we will hear your word this morning as being your word, and that we will be convicted where we need to be convicted, comforted where we need to be comforted, conformed to the image of Christ where we need to be conformed, and understanding our call as your people, as your children, as your disciples in this day and age. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. I think I say this at the start of every new sermon series, but I mean it every time I say it when I say I'm excited about this study. I'm excited for us to be together in the book of Nehemiah. I'm excited really for a couple of reasons. First is I like studying Old Testament books. I think sometimes Christians get too comfortable in the New Testament and we neglect the Old Testament. Because we can go to the New Testament and that's familiar to us. We can go to the Gospels. We're familiar with those stories. 
We could read the names and we're not tripping over our tongue with them. We understand some of that history. In some ways, it seems the New Testament can be more understandable to us and therefore we spend more time in the New Testament than we do in the Old Testament. I know I can be be guilty of that. To ask you where you're most comfortable in the Old Testament, you're probably going to say Psalms, maybe Proverbs, Genesis, a couple of the other books. So I know we can be guilty of getting too comfortable in the New Testament, so I like that we're being challenged of our comfort zone by studying this Old Testament book. Another reason for my excitement is because the book of Nehemiah actually plays a role in my testimony of faith. This book was the subject of the first real Bible study I ever took part in. In the summer of, of 97, which would make it 24 years ago now, and the Lord drew me back to him. And I went back to Winthrop University for that fall semester, and I got involved in campus ministry called RUF. I told you about this before. And pretty quickly being involved with this, I met a guy named Trey Benfield. And many of you have met Trey. He and his family come here almost every Easter uh, to celebrate Easter here with us at the church. And Trey, and, uh, Trey invited me to be a part of his uh, fall guys Bible study in the book of Nehemiah. So every Monday evening at 7 o'clock, a handful of us would meet in the upstairs room at the Dinkins Student Center uh, so we could study this book. And we always ended by 7.45 or 7.50 so we could get back to Trey's room, dorm room, and time to watch WCW Wrestling. And it was a heyday of Ric Flair and Sting and NWO. So we went from Nehemiah to WCW Wrestling. It was a great guy's night. But we would continue at times to discuss Nehemiah while we watched Sting come down out of the rafters and, and Ric Flair turn his back on the four horsemen. That was a terrible day in wrestling when that happened. But I can remember particularly one, one evening sitting there and, and being struck uh, by Nehemiah's uh, emphasis on the transcendent power of God. It's one of those moments in my life that sticks with me. So I'm excited to be able to come back to this book some 24 years later to study it again. So I hope you are excited about this as well. And when we end this morning, you can go home and pull some WCW wrestling on YouTube and have that experience as well. We've already mentioned, though, I think many of us have this big picture of Nehemiah, which is the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And that serves as a good, brief, overhead shot of a a snapshot of of this book. Because that does cover a significant portion of this book. But I think often we put the wall in the forefront and it just becomes about the building of a wall and not about who's building it and why they're building it and what takes place around their building it. And so if we just think about Nehemiah in terms of it being a wall, then we have a misconception, we have a misunderstanding of what this book is about. And what's interesting is I have seen that come up here in the past few years in the context of an argument for why America should build a wall on our border with Mexico. So here some say, by pointing to Nehemiah, to make the point, well, God and Nehemiah, and this is honest, if God and Nehemiah thought it was important enough to build a wall around Jerusalem, then it should be important enough for us to build a wall on the Mexican border. And I heard that argument more than one time. The problem with that argument 
is that it comes from what we call eisegesis. And that's just a way of saying it's a form of interpretation of interpreting the Bible by reading into it one's own ideas. So what eisegesis is, 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 is that the Bible isn't so much about what God says, it's about what I want it to say. It's not say, thus saith the Lord, it says, thus saith James, what I want God to sayeth in the King James. And that's a dangerous way to approach the Bible, isn't it? That's where you get heresy, that's where you get blasphemy, that's where you get cults. That's the danger of Isaac Jesus, that's dangerous for, for us to say, this is what I want the Bible to say. And it's the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is just simply interpreting scripture according to scripture. It is saying, thus saith the Lord. It is saying that the Bible is God's word, therefore we will let it speak as such. So when we exegete scripture, when we say, thus saith the Lord, this is God's word, then we are standing on the safe and stable ground of having God speak to us. And we're not making it up. Because if we just stick with eisegesis, then we're all going to have conflicting messages. What I want God to say may not be the same as what Bruce wants God to say, which may not be the same as what Hal and Pat want God to say. We all can be making it up, but when we exegete Scripture, we all stand that same firm ground together. Thus saith the Lord. So exegesis means we can't approach the book of Nehemiah and think to ourselves, well, hey, we should all be building walls, right? Uh, let's build a wall around South Carolina, which in some ways doesn't seem like the worst idea. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes about South Carolina is completely out of nowhere. It's a, a thing that said back before the start of the Civil War, that it is uh, too small to be a republic and too large to be an insane asylum. And I think that's a wonderful way to summarize our state. So let's build a wall around our state, right? Because Nehemiah says so. Let's build a wall around Winsboro. Let's build a wall around the church. But that's not the point of Nehemiah. The point of Nehemiah isn't about Christian building walls. The point isn't just a bricks and mortar narrative. Actually, this, the book of Nehemiah is about the faithfulness of God to his people, even after all their sins and sinfulness. It's a story about a man's faithfulness to God, even in the midst of hardship and tribulation. It's a story about God calling his people back to covenant faithfulness to him. So yes, there is a wall. But in some ways, that wall just serves as a backdrop to these other truths of the wonder of God, the faithfulness of his people, and the need for us to be faithful. That's why the book of Nehemiah is titled Nehemiah and not The Wall. The Wall is a great album by Pink Floyd. But it's not in the name of this book. The name of this book is Nehemiah. Because it's a story of a faithful servant who is faithful because his God is faithful. So he's faithful to go back and rebuild a wall and after that to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. It's a story of a man so struck by the transcendence of God that most of his life was lived in the awareness that God is God and he is not. That God is the great creator and he is the one who is faithful to the covenant he made with his people. So that Nehemiah, when he thinks of God, describes him as being great and awesome. So we find in Nehemiah, his focus wasn't on the wall. His focus was on God. He led the rebuilding of the wall because he was so awestruck by God. So that's who 
In a sense, Nehemiah is what this book is about. But what's also important when we come to Old Testament book is we have to keep some of the historical context in mind. Now, this is where it gets a little bit challenging for us. So you're going to need to kind of reach far back in your brain to old Sunday school lessons and, and, and old Bible studies and sermons and try to remember some of the Old Testament history that you may have learned over the years but try to forget because it can get confusing. But Nehemiah is written towards the end of the Babylonian captivity. So when you study the history of God's people in the Old Testament, you quickly begin to notice there's a pattern with them. And the pattern is this. They get caught up in sins and sinfulness and they refuse to repent of them. So God intervenes with his discipline to steer them back in the right direction. So after some length of time of discipline, God's people respond in repentance and they begin to obey again and everything's great. And then here comes along another sin and sinfulness. It builds up, they don't repent of it, and the cycle continues all over again. But what we see with this cycle and this pattern is that these sins and sinfulness actually begin to build up in a heinous nature. They keep on getting worse and worse and worse. So they go from, we think about getting the Ten Commandments, receiving Ten Commandments, they go from worshiping a golden calf to at some point worshiping gods where they sacrifice their babies to the gods. That's a growing and heinous nature of sin. But we find this ongoing pattern that God warns his people over and over again that his disciplines will become more severe because they aren't getting the point. And we, we understand that. Maybe our parents had to do this with us. We have to do it with our children. Your children do something wrong and you discipline them. And they do it again. They so go, okay, we have to heighten our discipline until it starts to get their attention and they turn away from it. So we find in Deuteronomy 28 that while, the God, while God was slow to get angry with his, with his covenant people, and he would warn them of their sins, consequences, through many hardships, he also told them his, his patience was not eternal. He was slow to anger, but there would be an end to his patience. That if they kept on these covenant violations, they would get expelled from the promised land. And so God would send prophets to warn them of this. We would think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophets. And why would Jeremiah weep? Because he knew the discipline that was coming. And he saw how hard-headed the people were. And he's begging them, stop sinning and turn back to God. We think of Isaiah doing the same thing. That they continue to not repent of their sins and, and, and turn back to God, live for and love God more in the world, then they would be kicked out of the land. Did they listen? No, sadly they didn't. And so that brings us to the Babylonian captivity. That brings us to the king Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming along. Because God's people did not repent of their sins, because they had no desire to follow after God, God finally reached the end of his patience. And he allowed this pagan king and nation to not only conquer his people, but to take them into captivity. Now think about that. They're in the promised land. This is the land that God has given to them. Take them from the exodus from Egypt and brought 40 years wandering through the wilderness to the promised land. And they have Jerusalem, and Solomon has built this beautiful temple. Everything is there for them. So not only do they have an oppressor, but they have an oppressor who takes them away from everything they know. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, 
takes him away and begins to tear down the city. As you can imagine, this was a terrible time for God's people. Some of them felt abandoned by God, even though they had plenty of warning this would happen. Others saw God's hand of disciplinedness. And although they could see the corrective love behind it, they, they still didn't really take away the sting of leaving behind everything you knew and had. That's the Babylonian captivity, and Nehemiah comes and ends this exile. This, this exile is coming to an end, and God is bringing his people back. He's renewing his people in the land in order to carry out what he promised to Abraham. But he tells them, like letting, like letting them out of timeout, right? Getting them out of the corner. He says, listen, I'm taking my hand discipline off of you, but you must renew your commitment to covenant faithfulness. You must lay hold of my forgiveness and you must seek to live as my people. You must seek purity in your, in your private lives and your lives together. So to help them in this, in his mercy, God raises up Ezra the priest, as we can see with that, that's to help them along in, in the religious aspect of it. And then 13 years later, after Ezra, he raises up Nehemiah to help continue leading this renewal. And so that's where we find the book of Nehemiah. That's what brings up our little history lesson to this book. And we don't know a lot about the background of Nehemiah. We know he was a Jew. We know his daddy was Hekeliah. His name means the Lord has comforted, and it's a longer version of Nahum. Although Nehemiah was a Jew, we find that he had risen to the, to be, to the level of being the cupbearer to the king. Now, what's that mean? Well, in ancient Babylon, they loved their wine. They loved good wine. So Nehemiah's job was to go every day, take uh, the king's wine cup and find the choicest wine and serve it to the king. But he always had to taste it first. He always had to take the first drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. People assassinated back in those days, they wanted power. Of course, they you know, didn't have sniper rifles or car bombs or drones or anything else like that. Most common form of assassination, one of the most common forms of assassination was poisoning. To get in and put you know, arsenic or whatever in the, in the wine cup or in the wine. So Nehemiah's job was to taste really good wine and hope he didn't die from it. Right? What a job, right? But it shows you how trusted he was by the king. To be the king's cupbearer was to be one of the most trusted advisors. Because you're always there with him. His life is in your hands. When the cupbearer hands you the cup of wine, you say, I haven't died, so I think it should be good for you. It's so trusted, there are times where he may even be called upon for his opinion, wisdom, and insight on some issues. So Nehemiah is high up. He's living a good life. But it's interesting because it also shows that there are Jews who have been captured, who have been resettled outside the promised land, who have risen quite high in the ranks of foreign governments. Think of the story of Daniel, who was captured by the Babylonians, and he had risen up in the governments. So we come to Nehemiah. We find that Nehemiah is a Jew, that he is living a good life. He is high up. he's he's living a good life. And it's wintertime because they're in Susa, which is the winter residence of the emperor. So while in Susa, tasting good wine, some Jews come to visit. And when Nehemiah finds out where they're from, he asks them about the city and the folks there. 
Now we need to, to keep in mind that Nehemiah more than likely had never seen Jerusalem. The Israelites had been exiled for 70 plus years. Nehemiah would have been too young to have been born in Jerusalem. He was a Babylonian. It says he was born and reared in Babylon. But it seems that although born and raised in a pagan land, Nehemiah was raised to be a faithful Jew. He had heard all the stories and the history of home in Jerusalem. He would have been schooled in genealogy. He would have known the stories of God beginning in Genesis and leading on through the Exodus and onward. He would have heard all these stories that we've heard. But he would have heard from people who have been there how beautiful the temple was. Oh, Nehemiah, you should have been there. I wish you could have been there to see the beauty of Solomon's temple. I mean, his grandmother would tell stories about how, how beautiful Jerusalem was with the setting sun on a fall evening. But all this was so ingrained into him that when Nehemiah had visitors from Jerusalem, he wanted to know everything that was going on. Look at verse 2. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, those who have survived the exile, and, those, and, and, and concerning Jerusalem. So essentially, Nehemiah is sitting there, these people come in, and it comes out they're from, they're from Jerusalem. Maybe he picked up in their accent or something, like, hey, where are y'all from? Are you from Jerusalem? Great. Well, tell me everything. Don't hold anything back. I want to know about everything that's going on. Jeremiah is ex- I'm sorry, Nehemiah is excited. His, his people are there, and, they, and, and they're going to tell him about this place he's always heard about. Never seen, never been to, he's always heard about. But the visitors have bad news. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Jeremiah knew, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, I don't know why I keep doing that, sorry, Nehemiah knew Ezra. That Ezra had gone back some 13 years before. I believe Nehemiah was expecting to hear good news. But he hears that those who have been left behind in the captivity, those who recently joined them, are in trouble. They are ashamed of their conditions because the walls of the city have been torn down. None of the gates are working because they've all been destroyed by fire. Keep in mind that cities in that time needed walls and gates for defense against enemies and vagabonds. So to have little to no walls standing, no gates, is essentially an open invitation for any and everyone to come in and do what they want to. It's, Jerusalem is open 24-7 for anyone and everyone to come in and do what they want to. So it's not a good situation. And this is what they tell Nehemiah. It isn't good. And as we look at Nehemiah's response, I want you to again keep in mind he had never been to Jerusalem. He'd heard the stories. He'd gone through the family scrapbook. He sat at the feet of his grandparents who talked about the beauty and wonder of it all, but he had never been there. It, was, it had never been his home. So we wouldn't blame him if, if his response was, Wow, I, I'm sorry. I, I hate to hear that. Let me see if we can take up a collection for y'all and give you some money to help along and you know, see, see what we can do. Thanks for coming by. Safe, safe travel home. Jerusalem wasn't 
his home. He's living in the lap of luxury. He could have easily ignored the plight of his fellow Jews. And I think we can understand that on some level, can't we? As I've told y'all before, you know, Sumter is my hometown. Moved there when I was three, lived there until I went off to college at the age of 20. I love my hometown. I still have friends there. But it's no longer my home. I've been gone now for 24, for 25 years now. Over half my life. It's no longer my home. This is my home. Winsburg is my home. My home is with y'all here at Bethel. So when I hear bad news about Sumter, and that's pretty much whenever I turn on the news, it seems like somebody's getting shot in Sumter every day. But whenever I hear bad news concerning Sumter, usually my response is, oh, no, that's so bad. Shouldn't have gone to that side of town, but, man, I'm sorry to hear that happen. I may even throw up a quick prayer, but then I move on with my day. Because Sumter's my history, not my presence. Jerusalem is Nehemiah's history, not his presence. But that's not how he responds, is it? Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So here we get our first look into Nehemiah's response of faithfulness to God's faithfulness. He, he asks and he receives these bad news. And his response is telling because it says, for days, not seconds, not minutes, not even hours, but for days Nehemiah devotes himself to prayer and fasting while in tears and sobbing. It's as if a member of his immediate family had died. He's almost inconsolable. If you had seen Nehemiah, your heart would have been broken. He prays. That's his first instinct. The first thing he wants to do when he hears about this is to pray and fast. Why? Because he knows God is faithful and faithful to hear his prayers. This is the first example we have of God's faithfulness in Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is responding in faithfulness to God's faithfulness. And he knows that God is faithful to hear his prayers. Nehemiah can't fathom doing anything else but prayer. But pray. As the, as the visitor's words hung in the air. Nehemiah, who is a man of action, we will see this, a man of action, but as these words hung in the air, in his mind he's already preparing to go to his prayer closet for days of prayer and fasting because he knows God is faithful. He was raised on the story of God's faithfulness from the garden to the ark to the exodus to the settling of the promised land to the defeat of enemies. God, Nehemiah knew through and through his God was faithful. How to respond to his knowledge? He faithfully prayed. Nehemiah knew something had to be done and he knew it started with prayer. Nehemiah's faithfulness is seen in response of prayer to the faithful God. And that calls to the question, how do we respond to situations in our lives? We get bad news, tragic news, mediocre news. How do we respond? I know I can be guilty of whining, griping. I can have lots of opinions. I'm full of a lot of hot air, amongst other things. 
But how often is our first response to pray? And not always just to, oh, God, help, and then move on. But your response is, is a devotion to, to a determined, dedicated prayer. That you're like Jacob wrestling with God. That through prayer, you're going to grab onto God and you're not going to let go until he answers. That's what Nehemiah does. He doesn't spend five minutes in prayer and then five hours doing other things. He is like Jacob. He grabs onto God and he doesn't let go through prayer. As Christians, our lives should be marked by prayer. Our response to any and every situation should be marked by prayer. To know us is to know that we are those who, like Nehemiah, are devoted to prayer because we know the faithfulness of God. And how do we know the faithfulness of God? We know the same way Nehemiah does, don't we? We know the story of the garden. We know the story of the ark, of the exodus to defeat of enemies, to settling of the promised land. But we have something even better than what Nehemiah has. We have the story of Jesus Christ. How do we know God is faithful? Because we know Jesus Christ. And we have this, this wonderful thing in our tradition called covenantal theology. And in that covenantal theology, we have this teaching called the covenant redemption that teaches that before the beginning of time, that if you were to take your Bible and flip back to Genesis 1 and, and, and you figuratively keep on flipping backwards, you go back before the beginning of time and you find that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit came together, or were, were, they were together. And they made a covenant. They made a promise bonded in blood that they would do anything and everything to save their people from their sins. So the Father covenanted to send the Son. And the Son covenanted to be sent. And the Holy Spirit covenanted to testify to that. That in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, we would be saved from our sins. And we see this faithfulness in every jot and tittle of Scripture. From the first words of Genesis to the last words of Revelation, we are taught and reminded and encouraged and convicted that our God is a faithful God. That as soon as sin entered into the picture, God said, look to Jesus Christ. I will send forth one who will be born of the seed of the woman who will crush your head. And then he went out and sacrificed innocent animals to cover the shame of his people's sin. Look to Jesus Christ. And that faithfulness is testified throughout the rest of Scripture. How do we know our God is faithful? We know He is faithful because of John 3.16. For God so faithfully loved you that He sent His only begotten Son. How do we know God is faithful? Because of Golgotha. Because we saw how God put His Son upon the cross to be our salvation. How do we know our God is faithful? Because of Easter morning, because the tomb, the stone on the tomb rolled away and the sun was risen for our eternal life. How do we know our God is a faithful God? Because 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father to be our mediator. If Nehemiah can know the faithfulness of God, we can know it even better because of Jesus Christ. Our salvation is a testimony to that. Our lives are a testimony to that. Jesus Christ is the testimony to that. So why do we pray? Not just because we're good ARPs. Why do we have all this prayer in our service? 
Not just because we're good ARPs. Why do we have a prayer service every Wednesday evening? Not just because we have good ARPs, because we're good ARPs. We have all this because our God is a faithful God. And when your child is sick, or when your spouse is losing their job, or something horrible is going in your life, there's nothing you want them to hold on more to than the faithfulness of God. And so, like Nehemiah, who followed the example of men such as Jacob, in prayer, we grab a hold of God. Because of Jesus Christ, we know he is faithful to us and faithful to answer our prayers. That's how Nehemiah's story begins. And that's how all of our stories should continue. That no matter what, we are faithful to pray because we have a faithful God. Let's pray together.